Good morning and welcome to our Family Bible Hour ministry. The last message I had preached to you was on August 23rd, uh, 2020. And the topic was, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And if you have read your Bible carefully, you will notice that this verse is mentioned three times in the Holy Scriptures. Three times. God does not want you to miss that. It was first uttered by the prophet Zechariah back in Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. It is one of the longest verses to be found in Scripture. Then it is mentioned a second time in John 19, 37. And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. And then also in Revelation 1, verse 7, just to make sure that the careful student of the scriptures didn't miss it, it is repeated for the third time. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Oh, dear friends, please notice who is to come in this passage. It is not Muhammad. It is not Joseph Smith. It is not Michael, the archangel. It is not Krishna, nor is it Buddha, nor is it the Pope. It is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to this earth and took upon himself the likeness of man, and then went to the cross of Calvary to pay our penalty for sins. God became man so that he could die in your place and in my place and redeem us from the curse of the law. But the world hated him and rejected him as their savior. Nevertheless, there is a day coming when he will return as the righteous judge to judge all the Christ-rejecting world. And the scriptures say that when they see him, they shall wail because of him. Why? Because their fate will have been sealed by then. They will have no hope of salvation on that day. This has been a rather lengthy introduction to our sermon but I have been deeply moved to fervently plead with the church of God. Make sure you have repented of your sins and have trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Because not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God. The churches are filled with false professors today. And it is the duty of the preachers, teachers, and pastors to preach the gospel faithfully every day, in every place, with every ounce of strength that they have. For what will it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
And so with these thoughts in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, and read it together. That will be our main text for this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the winds beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful this morning to have the word of God in our very hands. And in it we read some marvelous and wondrous things about Jesus our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And Father, as we have read this text before us this morning, we pray that the Spirit of God will grant us the grace and the wisdom to understand it and to be drawn closer to him. For we ask it in his name and always for his glory. Amen. Our topic for this morning comes from the very text itself. What manner of man is this? As we begin our main text uh, this morning, we read in verse 35 that the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, let us pass over onto the other side. That is, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Now we notice in that same verse, that the evangelist Mark is careful to state that it was that same day. Neither Luke nor Matthew mentioned that it was that same day. But it was that same day, that same day which Jesus had spent almost in its entirety preaching and teaching about the parables, the parables about the sower, the parable about the candle, the kingdom, and the mustard seed. And from Luke's account and Matthew's account, we can deduce that he had been busy also healing all manner of diseases and sicknesses as well. It was a very long, tiring day, and our Lord was very exhausted. He was drained, but in spite of his fatigue and weariness, he makes this statement, let us pass over onto the other side. It would seem at first that the implication of this was, let's get out of here, I'm tired. But that, I don't believe, is the correct view. 
that would be out of character of the Jesus Christ of the Bible. I believe he was fixed to go to the other side because he still had a work to do. There was a soul in desperate need of him. And if we read further on, we see that it was the demoniac of the Gadarenes, the one who was possessed with a legion of demons, 2,000 or more. So even under very exhausting circumstances and an incredibly heavy workload, our blessed Savior continued to pour himself out for the lost, for those whom he came to seek and to save. And so his disciples scurry him off onto the boat and head off for the other side. Please notice that Mark tells us in verse 36 that there were also with him other little ships. Just what kind of ships or boats these were would be hard to describe. But in most likelihood, they would have been fishing ships with sails of some sort, some small, some big. And as our Lord headed to the other side of the lake, these small ships followed him. Such was his influence. Wherever he went, he would draw people after him. And so as these little ships set out to sea, our weary Savior heads for the hinder part of the ship and finds a spot where to lie down and to rest. He falls asleep because he is so tired. The disciples, who were veteran seamen, go about their duties, whatever they were, in setting sail and steering their boat, fulfilling the command in verse 35 of their Lord. There is perhaps at this stage much commotion, much excitement concerning the events which had already taken place. Some of them may still have been discussing the parables about which Jesus spoke. Others may have been pondering about the healings or miracles which he performed that day, while still others may have been speculating as to what would happen next. What would Jesus do next? And while everyone was occupied with their thoughts, a great storm suddenly arose and the whole atmosphere changed. Panic struck those seasoned sailors, for you see, this was no ordinary storm. Now I understand that it is quite usual for the Sea of Galilee to be as calm as a mirror one minute, and then in 10 or 15 minutes to be lashed into fury by the swift descent of the storm from the mountains. And so these sailors, I'm sure, had experienced storms many times before. But this particular tempest was a very different one, a very fierce one, and they became frightened for their lives. The scriptures say in verse 37, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the winds and waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. The winds tossed this little ship mercilessly about on the sea, and the waves fiercely beat into it, filling it full of water, so that it was in immediate danger of capsizing. All of us here have experienced storms, 
rainstorms, snowstorms, and windstorms. And often these storms were very fierce, very frightening, very life-threatening. But there is always that one storm that is so horrifying that it brings with it the fear of God, such unleashed fury that surely our very lives are at stake, and the realization that this may be our last storm. We're not going to get out of this one alive. And that's exactly the position which the disciples found themselves in. They had tried everything to weather the storm, but to no avail. As far as they were concerned, the ship was going to go down, and there was absolutely nothing that they could do about it. So in desperation, they wake Jesus up and cry out to him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Verse 38. Matthew's gospel has them also cry out, Lord, save us, we perish. Lord, how can you sleep through all of this? Don't you see what is happening? Don't you care that we are going to perish or die? Ironic, wasn't it? Here was the creator of the entire universe calmly asleep on their boat in the midst of this raging storm, and they were frightened into believing that he would allow harm to come to them. Now the fault is not with the disciples. They acted in a manner that all men act when faced with this kind of danger. They became afraid. There are many Christians today who are afraid and seem to think that their boat is going to go down. But in spite of the seriousness of the storms of life, and in spite of our helplessness to calm these storms, remember this. The boat cannot go down when Jesus is on board. It is when we forget that he is the captain of our souls and in control, that we begin to panic and to take things into our own hands and often make things worse. There was another instant when another boat was tossed mercilessly to and fro upon the raging seas and winds. But there too God was on board, and that boat could not go down either. I'm referring to Noah and the ark in the Genesis account during the world flood. Often, however, when we are in the midst of these storms, it is very hard to remember that Jesus is there with us. Now, the question may arise in our minds, who or what brought this fierce storm about? Some have insisted that the adversary may have been responsible for this storm. He saw the Savior tired, asleep on the ship, and what better opportunity to try and thwart him from his purposes. But whether it was the wicked one or whether it was the natural course of nature that brought about this storm is not important. What is important is what happened next. Verse 39. And he, Jesus, 
arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. When Jesus spoke, even the seas and the winds obeyed his voice, for he spoke as the one who created them in the beginning. Psalm 89, 9 tells us, Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. And then in Psalm 107, verses 27 to 30, we have a picture of the helpless sinners caught in the storms of life. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. No sooner did the Lord command peace be still, than the winds and the sea obeyed him. And there was a great calm. What a marvelous sight this must have been to all who were present that such a thing should be accomplished, that even the wind and the sea obey him. But that is the testimony of the scriptures. I would like for us to notice that when Jesus arose and spoke these words to the forces of nature, he did so as the Son of God, the very one who created them in the beginning. He is the God about whom we read in Genesis 1, 9 to 10. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. It was he who in the beginning set their boundaries and gave them their instructions, as Job 26, 8 to 12 tells us. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne, and spreadeth his cloud upon it. He hath compassed the waters with bounds, until the day and night might come to an end. The pillars of heaven tremble, and are astonished at his reproof. He divideth the sea with his power, and by his understanding he smiteth through the proud. Now, unfortunately... Many educated and enlightened thinkers of today would have us to rationalize and belittle the miracles of our Lord and to simply attribute them to natural explanations. But the clear purpose and testimony of Scripture in recording these wonders is to show us that he who healed, helped, and saved a suffering humanity was God himself come down to earth as man. All these manifestations of miraculous things is a divine revelation of his power 
and God at work. To belittle them is to belittle him. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is master of all circumstances, situations, and occasions. He is sufficient for every need, for every emergency, for every soul's longing. Winds and seas do obey his commands. Demons do flee before him. Diseases and sicknesses and death are destroyed when he appears. Nothing can withstand his power and authority, whether in heaven or in earth or under the earth. And the wonderful news is that this same Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We who have put our whole trust in him can rest assured that though we may find ourselves tossed about in the storms of life, he is there and he is in control. Difficulties and distressing circumstances are merely an opportunity for him to display his power. Emergencies give us the privilege of proving his love, his grace, his mercy in our lives. And as we go back to verse 40 in our main text, we read, And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I would like for us to notice that it is not until the second last verse of this account that the gospel writer mentions the word fear. He says in verse 41 that they feared, and in verse 40, the Lord rebukes them for being so fearful. Now, this word fear or fearful is very significant in our relationship to God. Unfortunately, today, there is also much confusion about the precise meaning of fear in the scriptures. What does it mean to fear God? We have all sorts of wild interpretations as to what the fear of God might be, but most of them are wrong. Has it ever occurred to us that the fear of God might mean the fear of God? The root of this word has the connotation of being afraid, of experiencing terror or fear. And that's exactly what the disciples experienced during this storm and the miracle which followed it. Fear. The Bible says in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. That has always been the starting point for one's salvation. No sinner ever realizes his desperate need of the Savior before he realizes that he has offended a holy and a righteous God who will someday hold him accountable. When the reality of God's perfect justice strikes home, the sinner experiences the fear of God, which is then the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Then 
that sinner is open to further understanding of the nature, person, and works of his son. And so the fear of God is a good thing because it grabs the attention of the sinner and alerts his mind to his greatest need, and that is repentance and forgiveness of sins. But for the believer, the fear of God has another blessing. As Ecclesiastes 8.12 says, Surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. And then in Psalm 128, verse 1, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh, in his ways. And also in Psalm 103, we read, As heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. For the believer, there is happiness, there is mercy, and there is a state of well-being because of his fear of the Lord. Fear dishonoring the one who has done so much for him. Now, the disciples, we are told, feared exceedingly. What exactly did they fear? It was a fear of two things. The first we have already described earlier in quite some detail. They feared exceedingly the storm. They feared that they would all be killed, and they feared perhaps even that the Savior would drown with them as well. And all of the teachings of the kingdom would have gone to the bottom of the sea as well. For I do not believe that in their moment of panic and desperation, they had given much thought to what would happen afterwards. That the one who called himself the Son of Man would exercise his divine powers and supernaturally still the wind and the seas in such a manner. And when he did, they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Previously, they had feared the power and the wrath of the Creator in the storm, and that fear had torment and amazement in it. But now the disciples feared the power and the grace of their Redeemer in the calm. They feared the Lord and his goodness, and it had pleasure and satisfaction in it. And by it, they gave glory to Christ through the praises of their lips when they said, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? But let us not forget what Jesus also said to them concerning their fears. Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Matthew's gospel puts it, O ye of little faith. Though there may have been a good cause for some natural fear, yet there was not sufficient cause for such a degree of fear as they had displayed. Had they not already seen and known what Christ could do? 
Had they not already seen him heal the centurion's servant who was near death in Luke chapter 7? Had they not seen him raise the widow's dead son back to life? Had they not seen with their very own eyes the woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities? So why then did they so panic? Though they had faith, it was not yet a matured, experienced faith. It was a faith which needed to be appropriated to meet the situation. Where they failed was in not believing that, whether Jesus was sleeping on their ship or whether he was awake on their ship, no storm-tossed ship could possibly ever sink with him on board, whether asleep or awake. What a marvelous revelation the disciples had that day. They not only experienced firsthand the tremendous power of God, both in the rage and the fury of the storm, and then in the sudden calming of the same, but they also experienced the peace and providence of God at the same time. They learned, as we all must learn, that where Jesus is present, he brings with him not only the power of God to accomplish the impossible, but also the peace of God to still the storm and calm the heart, and to also make us aware that the providence of God is always manifested in his goodness, mercy, and grace towards us. This then brings us to the end of our sermon for this morning. But as always, before I step down from the pulpit, I need to ask you this. Have you ever trusted Christ, the Son of God, as your own personal Savior? Have you ever acknowledged that you are a wretched sinner without hope and that because of your sins you are headed to a Christless eternity, to a place called hell? Have you ever made a conscientious effort to turn from your sins and to receive Christ's offer of salvation based only on his work on the cross of Calvary? These and these alone were your sins. There and there alone were your sins and my sins judged. When God the Father heaped upon his Son the just penalty that we deserved on his Son. The Bible says that by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9 Oh, dear friends, do not be deterred from coming to Christ if you haven't done so already. This present COVID-19 crisis is but a distraction by the enemy to cause you to fear an invisible enemy, neglecting the salvation of your soul. Behold, says the Bible, now is the accepted time. Behold, 
Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Not later, not tomorrow, but now, while you still can. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are ashamed, if we are honest, to say that often we have not trusted him in the way that we ought to have. For he is sufficient for all our needs. Part us now, Father, with thy blessings, we pray, and by thy grace. And encourage us day by day to trust him more and more. For we ask it always in his name and for his glory. Amen.